since the last couple of years, we've, um, you know, we've done, or at least have been doing, three different book readings, scripture readings. We finished the Gita, which was such a proud moment. <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> we're going through Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. Of course, the autobiography of a yogi has been with us throughout this journey. And it just struck me, in fact, as Narayani was leading this first little meditation, you know, uh, Narayani and I seldom know what we're going to actually say in each of these classes. Yeah, we read through it, but very, just to get a sense of what the chapter is going to be. It's not like we're reading and we're like, you know, just coming up with every point. But uh, somehow interesting things, you know, end up kind of <laughs> emerging through these classes. And uh, I think a lot has to do with that, just those initial two minutes where we sit in a tune. And I don't think people do that when they read books. I don't think any of us, when we're going to read a book, even, okay, the day is done, let me read a little bit of the autobiography of a yogi. We don't sit and say, all right, master, come to me and, you know, be with me and guide me as I read this book. And just doing that much is, I think, responsible for a lot more insight that is able to be drawn. We know from Sri Yukteswarji's uh, example and from the stories there how when he would have them read scripture they would meditate first they would read one sutra then they would meditate again and that was how they kind of moved through any scripture and master said by the third sutra third verse of the scripture Sri Yukteswar would close the book and say oh yeah now you don't need to you don't need to even read the rest of it because you've gotten it the whole point of scripture was that you attune with the consciousness of what is being given. And once you attune to the consciousness, then it's not so important the words and the exact information that you'll receive. Now you have access to it whenever you need it. So, you know, we start reading it over here and when we need access to say something worthwhile, access is given just, I think, more based on that initial attunement than any actual awareness or knowledge that we're holding in our brain and kind of digging deep and trying to draw out from somewhere. It's just flowing. And I think it would be an interesting experience and experiment for all of us who, of course, especially are reading books like these. Meditate first and attune to whether the author of that book, whether the, you know, the essence of what that wisdom that you're about to receive and uh, see if that brings out an entirely different experience from that book. I was thinking about that as well, you know, that so many of us, and you can see also in Yogananda what an example throughout this journey, that even though he had already all this knowledge assimilated, I mean, within himself, I mean, he, he was already, you know, um, almost like a manifestation of the divine on earth. Still, he approached to each saint with an attitude of, let's see what, what I can gain from them, what else can I learn from them? And an attitude of openness, of receptivity, that many of us are not even capable because we carry so much preconception about the spiritual um, understanding from the past, from you know, in which way we have grown up, you know, the kind of education we have received, the culture, and 
and even the ability to position yourself in a space of receiving completely. Um, it's, it's part of the um, deeper understanding. And, and I think now we will see also when he goes and visit, visits Ananda Moima, you know, like, let's see what can I learn from here. Let's just put everything aside and, and let me open myself to see what I, can, what I can gain. And I think the attitude of receptivity, even with Gandhi, you know, like, I want to know more. How do you do this? How do you live by these principles? How do you do this in a daily life practically? I think the attitude of receptivity can also be, you know, refined within ourselves ever more consciously. Where we left off in our last class was um, this very important um, concept that Gandhiji introduces, which is that the life of the satyagrahi or the non-violent you know, participant is just as disciplined as that of uh, somebody in the army, a soldier. And we talked about how on the spiritual path that's so true, that we're constantly needing to stay in that discipline like a soldier needs to even when there is no war because it's that discipline that when war comes when things get hard when suddenly karma hits you at that time you won't be prepared suddenly you can't expect a soldier who's been doing nothing and sitting around lazily all day to get up and be able to wake up early in the morning and to be able to trudge you know 50 kilometers a day carrying those heavy backpacks so they have to carry heavy backpacks every day for no reason there's nothing happening, but they run 50 kilometers with those heavy backpacks every day, just in case when the day comes, when they'll have to do that for real. And that's the kind of preparation we need to have. We need to do it every day, just in case when things get hard. Because oftentimes what happens when things get hard, two things happen to people. Either they veer off from the spiritual path, or when they get hard, they start questioning and wondering whether any of this really works. And then they're not quite sure. And everything, all the energy they've put out up to this point, yeah. kind of, they lose all of that. So that's an important awareness for us to hold. Continuing, this is the four, 431st page. I don't think that's the right way to say it. 431 page number. Consulting history, one may reasonably state that the problems of mankind have not been solved by the use of brute force. World War I produced a world-chilling snowball of war karma that swelled into World War II. Only the warmth of brotherhood can melt the present colossal snowball of war karma, which may otherwise grow into World War III. Now that's an interesting relationship that Yogananda Ji draws between World War I and World War II. In fact, what created World War II was the very, very harsh conditions that were laid down on Germany after it lost World War I. So there's this idea that I have won, so now whoever has lost has to pay dearly. They have to, they have to feel humiliated, they have to feel completely broken. If the Allies had shown even a little bit of compassion, we've already destroyed you, we've already won, all right, it's okay now. But because they thought they need to humiliate this country even more, destroy it even further, make sure that there's no chance 
you know, that this country can ever rise again, that sentiment actually was in all the citizens of Germany and it was brewing and it was fermenting. And all it needed was one man to come and say, let's take our revenge. Let's show these people. And so everybody, all these really nice regular people, but because their hearts were so betrayed, so hurt, it didn't take much for one man to just come along and say, let's do it all over again. Knowing very well that all you people are going to be dead because of it, thousands, millions, really millions are going to die, but it didn't matter. And it didn't even matter to the people at that time because that's the energy that we carry. And in anything in the world, that's an interesting thing for us to remember. In any disagreement that you have with somebody, if you ever find yourself in a moment where you have the upper hand, be compassionate. Because otherwise that same energy will find its way to express once again. And this time, even with more devastating consequences, as we saw between these two world wars. Only the warmth of brotherhood, he then says, can melt the present colossal snowball. Now, of course, Yogananda Ji is writing this in 19, you know, uh, I mean, the book was published in 1946. So World War II had just ended. 1945 is when World War II ended. So at that time, that vibration of hatred and animosity and anger still existed. It wasn't like it had gone. And in fact, it then lingered for several decades in the form of what was called the Cold War between America and the erstwhile USSR. And even at that time, we were almost at the brink of nuclear war. It was called the Cuban Missile Crisis, but somehow, just in time, it didn't happen. So you could see how from war to war, I was just thinking, I mean, look at Afghanistan. After decades of a war there, you know, practically decimating that country. And then you leave, and what happens? <laughs> Nothing. The Taliban's back in charge. Everything's gone exactly back to what it was. The very reason you said, I'm going to go and help these people. But because you've come not with an intention actually to help, but to oppress, to suppress, you've only created more and more hatred in the hearts of people. And then the moment a little opening exists, that hatred just comes back. So it's an important way for us to see how we deal with people in our lives, situations. What are we, you know, introducing? What are we leaving people with in an argument? Do you give people the dignity at the end of the argument to also rise with you rather than, ha, you know, I did it. I was right and you were wrong. And, and believe me, these little things, they linger. And an argument may seem like a very tiny version compared to World War I, but it's a lot of arguments that then lead to world wars. And then that's part of what we're putting into the world. Use of jungle logic instead of human reason in settling disputes will restore the earth to a jungle. If brothers not in life, then brothers in violent death. War and crime never pay. The billions of dollars that went up in smoke of explosive nothingness would have been sufficient to have made a new world, one almost free from disease and completely free from poverty. This is another very interesting concept. The amount of wealth that exists in the world, whether 
at that time or especially today is more than sufficient to eradicate poverty to eradicate you know famine to eradicate all the issues that are faced it's more than sufficient to feed everybody who needs to be fed i mean it's not like we lack wealth or money in the world so you realize that it's not about money we keep making it about money oh if only you know we can raise all this money and this aid for africa or for this country or for that nation and we're just constantly making it about money as if if i throw enough money at it but money exists there's plentiful money and of course what is it about it's about consciousness it's the world's consciousness that can't sufficiently rise and when the consciousness isn't high enough then it doesn't matter what you have it doesn't matter the resources you have doesn't matter the skills you have the talents you have if your consciousness is low you won't be able to actually bring forth its true purpose and that is why that's the crux of uh, the spiritual life is to work and refine our consciousness not the external realities because the external realities exist and in plentiful in abundance everything exists in abundance in this universe except mankind's consciousness that then is you can say almost you can say it's the deciding factor whether whatever exists is going to be utilized in the right way or not and the same is true for our lives everything exists we have every means to overcome every test we have every means to love we have every means to be forgiving to give to open ourselves i mean we have every means possible at our disposal the only thing we don't have often times is the right consciousness and that then determines whether we're going to use our gifts use our love use our talents use whatever we have or we're not and that's where the world is and that's where each of us are individually the non-violent voice of gandhi appeals to man's highest conscience let nations ally themselves no longer with death but with life not with destruction but with construction not with the annihilator but with the creator one should forgive under any injury says the mahabharata it hath been said that the continuation of species is due to man's being forgiving forgiveness is holiness by forgiveness the universe is held together forgiveness is the might of the mighty forgiveness is sacrifice forgiveness is quiet of mind forgiveness and gentleness are the qualities of the self possessed they represent eternal virtue so this is a little quote from the mahabharata itself you can see yogananda ji really stressing on that word forgiveness and just this ability to really more than for you know we think of forgiveness as you've done something wrong therefore i forgive you but i like the word forgive it just means for give to be able to give you know just in any circumstance always think about giving if that can be your intention not about being right or wrong or you know not about circumstances at all just to give always and if in some chances opportunities forgiveness is being expressed in that way but it can be expressed in every way when we're just thinking about giving
Non-violence is the natural, you, you know, you want to chime yeah. in, no? Non-violence is the natural outgrowth of the law of forgiveness and love. If loss of life becomes necessary in a righteous battle, Gandhi proclaims, one should be prepared, like Jesus, to shed his own and not others' blood. Eventually, there will be less blood spilt in the world. And that's a hard one <laughs> to be able to put yourself forward. We're willing to put everybody else forward. All right, let's send all the soldiers of the country, <laughs> but not the leaders. You know, none of the leaders say, let me just go. And why don't you just kill me instead? And let's just save and save all these other people. No, no, let me send millions of other people. Let them fight it out and then we'll figure out who wins in the process. And uh, as Gandhi rightly says, that was Jesus's uh, one of his, in fact, a very tiny in this particular case, expressions as well. Just him sacrificing himself, just stepping into it and saying, all right, I'm, I'm ready. If, if the world's not ready to receive what I have to give, then perhaps this is the only way for them to know and to understand and to feel what I was trying to bring. And then that's what he did. He didn't say, all right, my disciples, you go on ahead. I'll be here, you know, you let me know how it goes. And don't you worry about getting killed in the process. No, you know, he steps in front of everything. You know, so that's important for us to see. Always put yourself first and see if you are willing to receive what it is that you then expect others to, you know, those principles that you want others to espouse as well. Epics shall someday be written on the Indian Satyagrahis who withstood hate with love, violence with non-violence, and who allowed themselves to be mercilessly slaughtered rather than retaliate. The result on certain historic occasions was that the armed opponents threw down their guns and fled, shamed and shaken to their depths by the sight of men who valued the life of another above their own. How beautiful. I would wait if need be for ages, Gandhi says, rather than seek the freedom of my country through bloody means. Now this is another quality of Gandhi that most people were quite against. And that was that Gandhiji was patient. And he said, it's okay if freedom doesn't come, but it has to come with dharma has to come with the right intention, right energy, right qualities. And that was very hard for most people because for them it's just like, we want freedom and we want it now and so why waste so much time? And uh, that's the hard part, isn't it, between the world and anybody who is trying to live by more spiritual qualities and principles is we know if we don't get it right now, it's just going to come back again. It's just going to keep coming back and keep coming back and there's no escaping it. So better get it right now. It may take a little longer. It may be a little harder. In fact, it will probably a lot, be a lot harder. But if you get it right, it's over. You see, it's never again, never again will you have to live it. But if you think, let me just get angry right now because that's going to be a quicker result. Let me just get frustrated right now. Let me just make this shortcut right now. Let me just lie right now. Because yes, it'll bring me an instant result. But then you just snowballed that karma. Now it's gotten larger. 
and the next time it's going to be harder for you to make the right decision again because it's now become because the stakes have been even raised more so the next time they'll be more likely that you will lie next time it will be more likely that you will get angry next time it will be more likely that you will use an adharmic option rather than go through that patient longer more tapasya filled process so if you can get it right now this is the moment to get it right if you think you'll escape it now and find another moment to get it right it's just going to be harder and so that's again just this man was willing to just get it right and he knew it could possibly mean that he himself would actually no longer see that freedom that he was wishing for but that's okay because if i get it right then really the country gets it right all of us get to live that karma all of us get to be uplifted and elevated because somebody chose and said let's get it right and uh, again these are little things that we can do in our daily lives i was thinking just about the whole forgiveness and gandhi and you know his patience when you were talking about it you know when yogananda said you know one of his greatest promises almost he gave to each one of us that i will come back again and again a trillion times if need be with bleeding feet again and again and again until i make sure each one of you will find freedom and perfection in yourself and and that willingness of sacrifice and forgiveness is holiness i mean are we willing to try daily even a trillion times no matter how painful might feel for the ego to keep perfecting ourselves and to have that that willingness to to change ourselves and and to have the patience with with ourselves in the process and and i was thinking this is really what every great master has come to and their i don't know their greatness of coming back even if that means you know painfully <laughs> for them just because their love for god is so great that they are willing to sacrifice their own freedom in god so when we look at our daily lives what are we sacrificing daily in order to support other people and i'm not talking about things i'm not talking about i'm not going to have this chai and instead i will give it to him because i i, I know he wants it i'm talking about the sacrifice of the ego mainly like am i willing to give him the last word am i willing to sit by their side am i willing to send a positive thought no matter how i don't want to but am i willing to try a trillion times until that it's overcome and i think that if there is a similarity here with the consciousness of forgiveness the consciousness of 
sacrificing our own ego and our own tendencies, and that's what will bring freedom to our inner citizens, to our own country. I mean, we are our own country. We represent a country. Our consciousness is where our soldiers live and get trained to go to work, to war every day. So choose, you know, how are you going to train yourself and the kind of sacrifice you are willing to offer in order to win this daily battle. This is a little something that Gandhiji wrote, which is also very beautiful. I call myself a nationalist, but my nationalism is as broad as the universe. It includes in its sweep all the nations of the earth. My nationalism includes the well-being of the whole world. I do not want my India to rise on the ashes of other nations. I do not want India to exploit a single human being. I want India to be strong in order that she can infect other nations also with her strength. Not so with a single nation in Europe today. They do not give strength to others. President Will Wilson mentioned his beautiful 14 points but said, after all, if this endeavor of ours to arrive at peace fails, we have our armaments to fall back upon. I want to reverse that position and say, our armaments have failed already. Let us now be in search of something new. Let us try the force of love and God, which is truth. When we have got that, we shall want nothing else. Now, of course, he's using the term nationalism, but as Narayani rightly pointed out, we are our own nation. And so when we see things like this, it's not about we need to get you know, patriotic at that level, particularly, it's lovely too. But think about it again from your own individual self. I call myself myself, but it's as broad as the universe. It includes in its sweep everyone. I will never want to rise at the cost of somebody else. And that everything that I consider is good for me, I want it to be good for others as well. I want strength only so that I can give strength to others. You see, these are, this is the way that we need to learn how to live. And this is how, when Gandhi's saying these things, he's first applying it to himself and then expanding it to his country. Now, of course, a lot of people in the country couldn't live up to a lot of what he was saying, but at least he did to the best of his ability. And again, that's, that's what we have to keep bringing it down, not so much to, oh, how wonderful, and oh, 1940s, what, is, what am I going to do today about it? And the same is true for us. Oh, if nothing else fails, at least I have my armaments, you know, I have my anger, I have my this, I have my egoic will. So if it doesn't work out, then I will use my ego. But it's the, always the other way around. The ego has already failed. Now forget the ego and let's work purely and see for a change if we can work by love and with truth. And we don't work with love and truth and therefore we keep falling back on the ego for everything. You know, we don't have the patience. Let's fall back on the ego. I tried. 
I said sorry to him and he didn't listen to me. I've tried. Now I'm back to my ego. Forget it. You are back in, on my blacklist and now we won't talk again. No, we don't have the patience to just say, no, it's going to be love no matter what. I'm going to follow truth no matter what. And I won't fall back on the ego. I won't fall back on my armaments because that's what the world believes. Let's try at peace, but peace is at least we have our weapons. And that's why peace will never work because that at least we have our weapons is really the main point of everybody's life. And then they only use their weapons. Let's move on a little bit because it will be a more or less a similar theme. But right here, I, another thing that Gandhiji says, which is also beautiful. If the opponent plays him false 20 times, he writes, the Satyagrahi is ready to trust him the 21st time. For an implicit trust in human nature is the very essence of the creed. Again, so beautiful. It's so practical, isn't it? Like, and so difficult. <laughs> if 20 times somebody betrays you, hurts you, harms you, lies to you, whatever, the 21st time still being able to say, let's try this again. Our thing is, he's, this person's done it once, and Done. that's it. <laughs> you know, and now we brand them in a certain way, we box them in a certain way, and even if on the external we're sweet to them and we're kind, and but we know where that person lives in our consciousness. You know, this is, this is what they did. Imagine that 20 times, even if two times, if we can achieve each time, three times, and keep pushing that number up a little bit, how lovely that would be. Because it's not about trusting the individual, it's just about trust. Because that, that means that you trust God. If you trust God, nothing that could have happened to you is wrong anyway. No betrayal, no hurt, no harm. Because it's all God. So when you're not able to trust that same situation to come back, then we're not able to trust God implicitly. And so, again, these are qualities to work on, isn't it? Trust, forgiveness, love, truth. And most of us, while we try in our daily lives to live by them, but we give them just a very slight chance of success. The moment it doesn't quite feel like it's working in our favor, we tend to want to settle back down on our armaments. It is curious, oh sorry, somebody says, Mahatmaji, you are an exceptional man. You must not expect the world to act as you do. A critic once made this observation. It is curious how we delude ourselves, fancying that the body can be improved, but that it is impossible to evoke the hidden powers of the soul. I am engaged in trying to show that if I have any of those powers, I am as frail a mortal as any of us, and that I, have, that I never had anything extraordinary about me, nor have I now. I am a simple individual liable to err like any other fellow mortal. I own, however, that I have enough humility to confess my errors and to retrace my steps. I own that I have an immovable faith in God and his goodness and an unconsumable passion for truth and love. 
But is that not what every person has latent in him? If we are to make progress, we must not repeat history, but make new history. We must add to the inheritance left by our ancestors. If we make new discoveries and inventions in the phenomenal world, must we declare our bankruptcy in the spiritual domain? Is it impossible to multiply the expectations so as to exception so as to make it the rule? Man must always must man always be brute first and man after, if at all? What a beautiful answer, isn't it? Because often we, we, we say to people, oh, you can do it. Oh, yeah, you, you know, you've not been through the problems that I have been. So it's easy for you to say. Somebody told our own guru, oh, well, master, you know, you're a master. And then his answer was, what do you think made me a master? <laughs> By doing a lot of what I'm asking you to do. And Gandhi's answer, of course, to a certain degree is even more applicable to us because he's not... You know, he's not talking about self-realization as much as he's just talking about living a more principled life. And people saying, oh, Gandhiji, you can, you know, you're just amazing. You're just so exceptional. So don't expect others to be able to do it. And he's like, why not? Why not? And that's how we excuse ourselves, right? I can't do this. Somebody else can, but I can't. Is, is there, are we saying that the <laughs> power of our soul is... You know, non-existent? Are we saying we can change our homes and we can change how things are in our lives, we can change our body, we can change our clothes, but we can't change our consciousness, or we can't change our mind, we can't change our habits? And it's these kind of little, very subtle things that we just assume, it doesn't matter, this is who we are, and this is where we will remain. And we'll just look up to some of these guys and just be inspired by what they're doing. And that's what then keeps us bound and keeps us in that slavery. I like, must man be brute first and man after, if at all? Must that be our first relationship with the world? Is, you know, that egoic imposition into the world? Must man be ego first and a soul after? And that would be, you know, so many beautiful ways for us to constantly be shaken a little bit and say, well, why can't my soul quality comes first? Why must an ego equality first come and then I have to fight it and then I have to you know, overcome it and then I have to pull it? Why, why can't I just bring a soul quality out first? Oh, I could actually. It, it's surprisingly at certain points, it's not that hard. It's just we've made such a habit of it and in our mind we've accepted it and we've said this is all right. It's all right for me to be sarcastic. It's all right for me to make rude comments. It's all right for me to have <clears throat> certain thoughts and just, it's all right. doesn't matter. But I'll meditate and I'll read and I'll, you know, come and bow before the altar. That I'll do, but I won't change anything about me. And you know, these are the important things for us to always be. It's not all right. It's a lot that can be done and don't draw the line that low that then you'll never cross that line in your life. Well, I think... I like when oh, he... Yeah. When he says here, I have hmm. enough humility to confess my errors and to retrace 
my steps. I love that, and to retrace my steps. Enough humility to, to recognize where I'm going off daily. And of course, it requires a lot of awareness and introspection and self-honesty when you see your own tendencies and you don't judge them, but you just recognize them. I'm, you know, I have these shortcomings and I'm aware of them and, and I need to learn to retrace my steps. And I think that's a, a beautiful, almost like a mantra to keep in mind throughout the day. Where and when do I need to retrace my steps and just redirect my energy because the ego is constantly stepping in and just wanting to direct our daily lives, our thought patterns, and, and the ability to see that, the humility to recognize that, oh, wait a moment, I mean, I may, might have been on the path for 20 years, for 10 years, for three years, I may agree about, but so what? There is so much that needs to be studied about ourselves and introspect and see where do you have to retrace your steps every day and, and pay attention to it. I, I just loved that sentence to retrace my steps and, and not be afraid of. I mean, that's the greatness of every saint or every leader or someone in a position of leadership. That's really the greatest, I think, mm, Quality. Quality. To not be afraid to make a mistake, take the responsibility for it, and knowing that I can change that right away. And that's where our power will come from, the ability to be willing to change and retrace, retrace our steps. I, I just love that. I'm glad you brought that up, in fact, because when he says the only things Gandhi says, the two things that I have, the two things that I own is, I have the humility to confess my errors and to retrace my steps, and I have an immovable faith in God and his goodness and an unconsumable passion for truth and love. I just have this. Based on this, I'm doing everything else. And isn't that beautiful? He's not like, I know this, and because I really know how this should work, and uh, I don't have anything else. I have humility. And I have the ability to walk back any mistakes I've made. And then I have faith and I have a passion for love and for truth. And these are things that I think we could easily develop. I don't think it will, I mean, maybe easily is not the right word. But we can certainly give a lot more energy to and focus on how much faith do we have? How much passion do we really have for truth and for love? Because it takes a certain amount of passion. It takes, you know, wow, I really want to do this. I really, really, how much passion do you have for your own freedom? Because if that's not there, then of course it's going to be hard. And then of course you are going to say, oh, they can do it, but I can't. Because well, you do lack the passion. They had passion. You don't have the passion. So yes, there is going to be a little bit of a distinction there. But even that can be developed. 
So with that, even though there's a couple more paragraphs, but more or less uh, of a similar vein, we end with our time with Gandhiji. We say goodbye, we have our pronouns <laughs> over there. And you know, even though all of us uh, never got to meet him in this life, but through this book, we, we get to have a real relationship with him, a real connection with him. And if, there's, if you've never known anything about him, read anything about him, heard anything about him, and all you've read is this chapter, that's plenty. Now, now you know the man, because now you know just a vibration of his consciousness. And this is something, if ever you find yourself in need of a moment of a little strength to retrace your steps, a little humility, a little more passion for love and truth, you can tune into him and you can actually draw it from him uh, anytime. So, because we said we should, and yes. we're very excited, and we sang to her, and we drew her, yeah, so we, we, have to, we have to at least the first page get on to our next chapter. This is the forty-fifth chapter, the Bengali joy permeated mother. <clears throat> Sir, please do not leave India without a glimpse of Nirmala Devi. Her sanctity is intense. She is known far and wide as Ananda Muima, or joy permeated mother. My niece, Amiyo Bose, gazed at me earnestly. <clears throat> of course, I want very much to see this woman saint. I added, I have read of her advanced state of God realization. A little article about her appeared years ago in East West. East West is a magazine that Yoganandaji had started uh, in the United States to kind of draw um, a lot of information of saints from the east and he would also put in a lot of saints uh, in the west and a lot of hidden saints especially in the scientific community who were trying to find you know through what seems like more of an outward discovery and invention but they're always trying to find a more hidden connection between uh, the divine and with the phenomenal world i have met her amio went on she recently visited my little town of jamshedpur at the entreaty of a disciple, Anandamoyima went to the home of a dying man. She stood by his side, his bedside. As her hand touched his forehead, his death rattle ceased. The disease vanished at once, and to the man's glad astonishment, he was well. We had a, a friend, a very close friend in Pune, who is a disciple of Anandamoyima's, Kailash Ji. Uh, he's an elderly gentleman now. I've not seen him in I don't years. Know, <laughs> years, years, years. But uh, he was a very close disciple of Ananda Mahima, and uh, she often came to his home. And, and uh, he was in a very terrible car crash, I believe, or a, a, some mm -hmm. sort of an accident that <clears throat> would have rendered him completely, I think, paralyzed, paralyzed or just unable to move at all. And uh, Ananda Mahima visited him in the hospital when and she was very elderly by that time herself and uh, i can't remember the specifics but i believe she kind of whispered something in his ear or something which he perhaps didn't tell us <laughs> but uh, from then he got fairly healed he still had he has a limp but that's all that that entire accident left him with so it's nice to see even you know people that you know around who've had these experiences with her a few days later, I heard that the blissful mother was staying at the home of a disciple in Bhavanipur. Mr. Wright and I set out immediately from my father's Calcutta home. 
<clears throat> As the ford neared the Bhavanipur house, my companion and I observed an unusual street scene. Anandamoyi Ma was standing in an open-topped automobile, blessing a throng of about 100 disciples. She was evidently on the point of departure. Mr. Wright parked the ford some distance away and accompanied me on foot toward the quiet assemblage. The woman saint glanced in our direction. She alit from her car and walked towards us. Father, you have come. With these fervent words, she put her arm around my neck and her head on my shoulder. Mr. Wright, to whom I had just remarked that I do not know the saint, was hugely enjoying this extraordinary demonstration of welcome. The eyes of 100 chelas were also fixed with some surprise on the affectionate tableau. I had instantly seen that the woman, that the saint was in a high state of samadhi. Utterly oblivious to her outward garb as a woman, she knew herself as the changeless soul. And from that plane, she was joyously greeting another devotee of God. She led me by hand into her automobile. Anandamai Ma, I am delaying your journey, I protested. Father, I am meeting you for the first time in this life after ages. Please do not leave yet. So you'll see this whole scene play out and Master doesn't say anything about it. It's so weird. He still, you know, everything that you'll read, he'll, he'll act as though he doesn't know what's going on and he's just kind of... But you see Anandamai Ma constantly addressing Master as Father over and over again. Father this, if Father wants me to do this, I will go. If, And you obviously know that there is some ancient, deep, connection. deep, deep connection between these two. I'm also interested to know this father yeah. experience. I know that in the time of the Mahabharata, Master said that when he was Arjuna, uh, Ananda Moima was Draupadi. And so there's that relationship, but of course that's not a father-daughter uh, relationship. But it could be, you know, I believe back then they often refer to even husbands in... Uh, that kind of a respectful, you know, uh, address. So maybe there's something to do with that relationship or who knows what other relationships they have shared. But you can definitely see that she's, she's just going on for it and Master's holding on to the pretense that, oh, I don't know who this person is and I'm just meeting her for the first time. And, I, you know, and, he, and he just keeps that pretense throughout. Mm -hmm. Never does he suddenly break it and say, oh yeah, we know each other and we've been lovers of God for incarnations together. I had found many men of God realization in India, but never before had I met such an exalted woman saint. Her gentle face was burnished with the ineffable joy that had given her the name of Blissful Mother. Long black tresses lay loosely behind her unveiled head. A red dot of sandalwood paste on her forehead symbolized the spiritual eye ever open within her. Tiny face, tiny hands, tiny feet, a contrast to her spiritual magnitude. The Blissful Mother travels widely in India. In many parts, she has hundreds of disciples. Her courageous efforts have bought, brought about many desirable social reforms. Although a Brahmin, the saint recognizes no caste distinctions. 
A group of us, these chelas are saying, always travel with her, looking after her comforts. We have to mother her. Because if she takes, because she takes no notice of her body, if no one gave her food, she would not eat or even make any inquiries. Even when meals are placed before her, she does not touch them. To prevent her disappearance from this world, we disciples feed her with our own hands. For days together, she often stays in the divine trance, scarcely breathing her eyes unwinking. One of her chief disciples is her husband. Many years ago, soon after their marriage, he took the vow of silence. Sure, that's a good quality in a husband. <laughs> Absolute silence. But uh, anyway, we've, we've at least entered into the Anandamai Ma's life into this little realm of hers. We'll, in our next class, get to experience more. I don't know, you have any parting words? No, just thinking that after all these, you know, fighting for India and for <laughs> principles and just yamas and niyamas and, you know, it's good to have now introducing, you know, a more, even though Gandhi, of course, there was so much joy and passion in what he did, but now we are just shifting the energy completely. Now there is not an outward expression of, of a mission that Ananda Moima had. I mean, her mission, her message was being in that state for 24 hours, where she was already there, and that state was what she had to offer and to share with people around her. And, and it was important for the disciples to, to learn by them learning to be in that state as well, in her presence. And of course, Yogananda said here, I recognized immediately, I mean, just, just like that, that she was in a very high state of samadhi. I mean, you could see that right away. So for the disciples to always constantly being pushed while in her presence, to try to emulate, to feel, to invite, that the state of consciousness, I'm sure, was a daily struggle as well. So I'm, I'm curious to see in the next few pages, you know, how, how, what she represented also for us on the path, because I think she represented more the goal of what the path can offer you rather than what to do to take you there. You know, for, for many of these saints, you can see that they, they give us you know, examples of how to go about it, the things that need to be practiced, the things that need to be, you know, to do on a daily basis. But she, she, she has reached the goal. And this is how it feels. This is how it can be perceived when you are in the world and not of it because you are in that exalted state and you have people taking care of you for a reason. Of course, for them as disciples, that was their sadhana. But, but yes, it's going to be nice now to, to see, you know, how her saintliness and her holiness is manifested, but just she be able to be in that state and what that state did for her disciples. Well, thank you everyone.